my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my relief. So, in our gospel reading today, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It struck me that that's a bit of an odd, an odd phrase for a Remembrance Day service where we're honoring the sacrifice of veterans, but maybe we can return to that odyssey when we get to the end to tie it all together. Jesus' words, go and learn, are a deeply personal challenge, but you cannot invite an ex-biblical studies professor to the pulpit and then not expect him to try to insert himself into the learning process. So take that for what it is. Um, it is your learning process, and I, I will try to respect We've been working uh, the narrative lectionary uh, this year, and we find ourselves in the era of the kings and the prophets of ancient Israel. In this Sunday's reading, and our gospel reading has Jesus quoting from a prophet from that era. So, in the narrative arc so far, we started with the Creator who makes a good creation, but then a fall triggered by humanity's questioning of the goodness of the Creator, and, and a disruption in relationships starts to unfold, a disruption that the Creator must address. And that ultimately leads to a choosing of a couple, Abram and Sarah. A couple the Creator sends on a journey and joins them on that journey. A journey that leads to a child, grandchildren, and ultimately a nation. That nation ends up enslaved in Egypt, but the Creator steps in, excuse <coughs> me, liberates them using great ancient prophet Moses, who most people have heard of, uh, taking them out to the wilderness where he makes a covenant or agreement that they will serve as a sort of priest among the nations, a conduit of his plan for eternal blessing to all humanity, but they must be loyal to him. And there they receive the sacred rituals that they will use to be reminded of the relationship they have with the Creator, a sacred space created by the tabernacle, later replicated in the temple in Jerusalem, and the sacrificial system that works to maintain these sacred spaces. So they go on to possess the land promised in the ancient days to Abram and Sarai, and they initially ask for a king, a request they are fairly warned might not be wise, but they do it anyway. Again, maybe the first king shows why it might not have been a very wise request. The next king, David, son of Jesse of Bethlehem, shows more promise of what a king ought to be. He becomes an archetype of what a king should be. Although the story is not terribly afraid to talk about his failings as well, the, the length of fire reading we had this morning shows us how hopes for a better time, hopes for actual righteousness and peace in a time when there was not righteousness, when there was not peace, was, was evoked by remembering David, a new David who brings true righteousness and peace. The third king, Solomon, starts promising very wise and then ends up being sort of the typical poster child for the type of behavior Samuel says you can expect from kings. Not terribly flattering. And by the fourth, the nation fragments into two kingdoms never to be fully reunited in the land. And in this era of kings and their frequent leadership failures, you also have prophets and priests. And that brings us to our reading in Micah today. So Micah the prophet occupies that space in Israel's history marked by moral failures, with a few noteworthy exceptions. Too often, the kings of this era, they fret, they work the angles, they work the power plays of international alliances, they get busy with local warfare making, 
when often the wiser course of action say the prophets would be to trust the Creator. Sometimes it goes further, but some embrace sort of extremist religious rituals like child sacrifice in a raised attempt to gain some kind of an advantage, to gain some kind of control. And as for the people, as the people, and here in Micah's context, this is all about the failure of the Creator's people to ensure a fair and a just community. Those with the resources and power oppress those who don't have resources and power, and they're immune from legal repercussions. And that's the opposite of what the covenant the wilderness ages before called for, a nation where hopeless poverty would not take place, where those at risk were cared for, and honesty and decency were expectations. Honest court systems were expected. And in the ancient covenant, this was impaired. A long life in the land of the promise was contingent on it. Surely the duty of the king was to see the covenant follow. Well, what of the priest of the temple? Well, we're going to need to spend a little bit of time on that if we want to see what Jesus was on about when he quoted the ancient prophet. So the, the ancient tabernacle or temple was a very rich symbolic universe, all right? Like all ancient temples or shrines, it marked out a sacred space where the God makes its home on earth and where the God makes itself available to its people. And this sacred architecture inside the tabernacle of the temple is well known and understood across various people. You can visit almost any nation in the ancient Near East the Mediterranean world and find the same kind of architecture. You have an outer court, you have an inner sanctuary, and then increasing levels of sacredness, you finally arrive at the most sacred zone, the Holy of Holies, and here's where the God of the resides. And sacrifices, likewise, everybody does this in the ancient world. It's a bit of a problem because everybody knows what they are and what they need. The Bible never really explains them. So it's a bit challenging for those of us who don't live in a culture where we do sacrifices regularly. But, well, I'll try. Let's try anyway, okay? So I think it might help us understand where this is going. Sacrifice is symbolized in my things. At its heart, to bring an animal or a bird for slaughter, or grain or bread for offering daily, to be given to the priest of the temple, put some of it before God. That's an act of gift giving. In ancient cultures, in a lot of modern cultures, I think we're a bit of an outlier, but in most cultures, gift giving is how we mark out and build and strengthen relationships. The fact that sacrifices were the product of agricultural success shows that those giving it believe that the blessing of the land, fertility of the animals, is a gift from God. And so you give God back part of what He's given you. So again, it marks symbolically marks of the goodness of the Creator, the provision of creations. And sacrifices were also there to deal with, with uncleanness, a concept I think we challenge as modern readers. But that's a threat to sacred spaces, and it's created by two things. Either very natural transition process in life off of getting cleanliness. But, and this is where the mega text goes, moral failure also creates a threat to these sacred spaces. And I thought I'd, I'd take a run and explain sacrifices using an analogy. And I'm going to apologize in advance. This analogy requires the application of gender stereotypes. So to fairly warn, I just don't think it works if I know. So, I apologize in advance. <laughs> you can bother me about it later. Okay, so I need you to think of a man buying flowers for his spouse. Right? If I'm in the store 
and I see a man buying flowers, and I've always wondered about why. Okay. Now, so if it's and I, you're laughing because I know why you're laughing. If it's Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, that sort of answers itself, right? Certain holidays call for flowers as part of the annual, what I call the annual maintenance cycle of a relationship. And, and just like in the Old Testament, you have sacrifices, major annual festival, come up with the sacrifices. It's just what you do. No question, it just do. Then there are other occasions that call for flowers. The birth of a child, the hospital visit, invitation to a formal dinner, right? And in the sacrificial system, likewise, you present a gift to the priest at the altar um, when you, after the birth of a child, part of the process. In many cases, by the way, sacrifices are often part of just a, a whole festival cycle. So you, you bring, let's say, you, you bring an animal to the, the temple, you know, a, a little piece goes to get burned before God, the priest takes some for their upkeep, and most of it goes back to the family, and you have a gathering of feasts. So if you think about sacrifices as things that bring unity and life-giving, that's where some of the imagery comes from. But there is that other reason for bringing home flowers, right? You're laughing because you know where this is going. It's called the post psychology bouquet. Or have you never heard of it? Congratulations, if not. And that is usually why when I see a man bringing flowers, buying flowers, there's just a little part of me that wonders if do we have a case here of A, the world's most thoughtful man, or maybe B, a schlep like the rest of us who patches things up with flowers. Both possible, right? And of course, this too has an equivalent in the sacrificial system, the guilt offering where you're trying to make amends for transgressions. And in Micah 6, the prophet taunts uh, with this rhetoric, the target of his rhetoric gets this taunt. So, how big a bouquet can you bring to set the last transgression right? A dozen roses? Two dozen roses? A dozen dozen? How many flowers are you going to bring? Right? That's the nature of that pretty simple. The temptation with the sacrificial system is when you're a person of resources and your quest for control and power, no, no limit. What do you do with it? You dump down on the system. You want to buy the Creator's favor. You want to treat your relationship with the Creator as a transaction that forces certain results in your favor. But this is to prevent something very important, something baked into the DNA of the covenant the Creator made with his liberated slaves. There is one very important way that the ancient Hebrew tabernacle is different from that of other nations. Namely, in the most sacred central zone of the temple, where you would expect to find an image of the god or goddess, there is nothing of the sort. In fact, the Ten Commandments ban making an image of the Creator. Thou shalt not make a golden red image of Yahweh your God. Why the ban on an image of God? And when I say it that way, have you heard that phrase before? Does it remind you of another story? Does it maybe remind you of the very first story in the Bible? Did you hear that phrase there? You go back to the first story of the Bible, the grand start of our narrative. Where is the image of God found? It's in the humans that the Creator makes. The image of God is not tucked discreetly into the hidden, hidden recesses of some sacred zone in a temple. Rather, it walks and talks and is found everywhere people can be found. 
And if you go back to the founding story of Israel, it's covenant means temple worship. There you would find the principle that God's protection and blessing of his people isn't premised on the bounty of the sacrifices they bring or great displays of religious devotion. It's premised on their ability to treat each other with dignity, to honor those who fall behind, to ensure justice and fairness for all. That's what God's ongoing blessing and presence is contingent on. How you treat the image of God you find in everyday life is the test of your devotion to the Creator. It's not to say sacred rituals are worthless, they're not. If they remind you and lead you to a place of gratitude for your Creator, and that makes you treat His image wherever you find it with the honor and love it deserves, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. You know, one of the reasons I really enjoy Christian Church, I have to say, is because traditional church architecture like we have here really imitates the sacred structures of the ancient Temple of Israel. In case you didn't know. So there's an outer courtyard, right? The outer courtyard is where we can gather and prepare for coming into a, an inner sacred space where the sacred things happen, right? And eventually you find your way to the holiest place. So, um, you know, and, and when we come up to the holy place, by the way, you'll notice we have an altar, we have a candle stand. This is all stuff. From a very ancient temple architecture. Every Eucharist, we reenact the sacrifice, not one we bring, but a selfless sacrificial gift from the Creator who gave his life in solidarity with those who feel most abandoned by God. It's an extraordinary act of mercy, however you parse it out, you want it. And here, too, the Creator is invisible. Without him, as we come up, we bow to an invisible king in our holy of holies. And yet the image is here. It has taken shape in the human that is Jesus, and we celebrate and share humanity with the Eucharist. He can feed us. He can eat us as our creator God. And in the people that serve the Eucharist, in the people that come forward, there we find the image of God in each other and with each other. And so we come back to Micah and Jesus who say, never mind about the sacrifices, the creator is actually after something more. All of this, the art, the music, the rituals, the symbolism, it's all a way of connecting us to the Creator who then says, go forth and find my image elsewhere now. I have filled your everyday life with people who need you to do the right thing by them, to whom you can show mercy, to whom you can show how much God loves. You need to give up your claims to be right and entitled. Take the energy that we expend trying to defend our space. Take that energy, pour it into those around you who actually need it. That's the beautiful thing we're called to by this beautiful worship. I suppose getting flowers after a fight may well appreciate them. They might also share God's sentiments expressed in these texts. Stop bringing flowers, start doing the right thing, right? And, you know, maybe we work, need to work on a relationship on a day-to-day -day basis so we can see flowers can arrive for reasons other than Sina and the cloud. I think that's the spirit of what this text is saying. Finally, I, I want to talk about the word that our veterans on this day of remembrance and their sacrifice. On Remembrance Day, we engage in buying flowers. 
We use rituals to express our appreciation for those who are willing to give up their lives for others. Um, I grew up in a pacifist tradition, so I didn't have a lot of veterans in my life. So when I became an adult, I consciously went out of my way to get to know veterans. And I still do to this day. So we're here. Friends are veterans. And part of the reason for friends is because I, I sought them out. And those I got to know personally, I, I found ways of somebody asking what motivated them to do what it is they did. Some, some gave a decade or more to service. And those I know personally were motivated to see justice and saw their mission in terms of protecting those who could not otherwise protect themselves. And that feels very much like seeking justice, right? And executing mercy as per the call of the prophet. I have also heard firsthand the challenges in post-combat life and PTSD. And you know what? Just like the prophets, laying flowers in remembrance day isn't enough, is it? It's not. It's good, it's beautiful, but that's not enough. Doing right by our veterans requires rolling up our sleeves and finding creative ways to support and show mercy on a personal level and a structural level. I think that's what we have. That's part of going out and doing the world and being just to show. So it is with our worship this morning. It's a reminder, beautiful and important, that the images of God will be in your life all week waiting for you to pass on the love and the mercy of my prayer. And that is a gift here.